Welcome to another Calvary Baltimore B-Side with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. B-Sides are a companion to the weekly sermon, giving an in-depth look behind the teaching. And now with running commentary to complement this week's sermon, here's Pastor Josh. Welcome! <laughs> Welcome to B-Sides. Uh, sorry for the odd time today. Uh, Monday was Labor Day. Tuesday was our first, uh, my kid's first day at, uh, back at school. And um, I wanted to be present for that. So um, here we are on a Wednesday. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, welcome. Uh, we're going to be looking at last week's text, uh, or on Sunday's text, Revelation chapter 11. <clears throat> this is one of those uh, B-sides that I think are, are important because I really get to talk about structure. Um, which I think is going to help us really get into the next section of this book. Uh, so, uh, Revelation chapter 11. Uh, before we re get into uh, review this glorious chapter, I think it will be helpful for us to review where we have come from. So, the book of Revelation opens in chapters uh, 1 through 3, as John introduced us to the author, uh, which is Jesus. Jesus is the author of this book. This is his revelation. And the intended recipients of this book, uh, John has introduced us to, is the church. This is for the church. First, the seven churches in Asia Minor, symbolic of the seven, the whole church throughout all time. And as we clearly established, the book of Revelation is not the revelation of the end days, this book is not the revelation of the end of the world. Is not the revelation of the Antichrist. No, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is from Jesus and about Jesus. And it's very common uh, for someone to say, when, when you're talking to somebody who doesn't necessarily attend a church, maybe they do, uh, it's very, you know, you hear it regularly when someone says, I'm interested in the book of Revelation. Uh, you hear people say that a lot, and uh, because you know what you know, you can respond with, great, let me tell you about Jesus, because <laughs> it's all about him anyways. Uh, so you can just then give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, then next, in chapters 4 and 5, we follow John as he was taken through a door in the sky and was brought into the throne room of God Almighty. So the trajectory is one very much of a tabernacle. John is in the court of the Gentiles uh, as he's on Patmos, Gentile Island. Then he's brought into chapter 2 and 3, uh, uh, chapter 1, 2, and 3, uh, with Jesus, who's amongst the lampstands. Lampstands were placed in the holy place where the priest tended to the lamps. Of course, uh, Jesus was dressed as a priest. So we went from the court of the Gentiles to the holy place. And then finally in chapters four and five, we're brought into a door through the sky past a veil, so to speak, and are brought to the very throne room of God, which of course is represented in the Ark of the Covenant. So we are brought from the court of the Gentiles to the holy place into the most holy place, the holy of holies. And there we were before God Almighty. And it was there that Jesus was declared worthy as he took the scroll, worthy to take the title deed of the earth, worthy to execute the perfect will of the Father before the end, worthy of all praise. 
Next, starting in chapter 6, the seven seals on the scroll start being opened by Jesus, and with each seal open, something big happens. And mostly a new judgment was poured out upon the wicked. And this, these judgments were being poured out and poured out, not just because God is holy and just, which he is, but also because God is using these judgments and pressures to bring sinners to repentance. God is pursuing sinners by breaking them of their sins and rejection. Then after the sixth seal, there's a break in the judgments, and that's when God raises up the 144,000 of Israel who are pastors and missionaries, and they have been chosen and sealed to pursue the lost. Then the seventh seal brings the seventh trumpets in chapters 8 and 9. The trumpet judgments have been blown, and with each trumpet blast, a new judgment is poured out upon the world. Again, this is all, this is more than just, this is about more than just God's judgment and justice and holiness. This is also for the purpose of God's glory and to bring sinners to repentance. God, God is revealing who he is in these judgments, that he is the God most high, but also that he wants sinners to repent. And then, uh, and then, uh, this leads us, uh, like the seals, there's a break. There's a break in between the sixth and the seventh seal. Uh, and after the sixth the trumpet, John is going to eat the scroll that Jesus opened and is told to prophesy after eating it. And that leads us to the 11th chapter. So this is the trajectory we've been, been on. And very much chapter 11 is the midway point between the first half of the book and the second half of the book. It seems to be the, <laughs> the, the fold in the book, so to speak. It's the dead, the dead center, uh, as far as themes tend to go. Uh, so with that, let's hop in. This is, this is, uh, we're going to be in verses one and two today. And this is going to be part of our, um, This is the introduction to some really incredible things that are going to introduce us to the second half of this book. Um, so I'm excited to get into some of this. So let, let's let's read Revelation 11, verse 1. Then I, John, was given a measuring rod like a staff. So he, he was given a long reed to measure. Uh, these reeds were taken uh, from river banks, typically. They were cut to a certain size. Uh, you know, you'd have a cubit, you'd you'd have measurements, and that's what he's using to measure. Also, these reeds were, could be used to write things. They, you know, pens could be be made out of them. So this measure and writing seems to maybe be a dual purpose here. Um, but John was given a, a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there. John is told to, interesting, isn't it? Rise. That's interesting to me. Why was John sitting? Why was he laying down? But he's told to rise and measure the temple. Well, if we remember chapter 10, John just ate something that hurt his stomach. So it may be that John had such a bad stomach ache, he's laying down from the stomach pain. We don't know that for sure, but God tells him to rise, which implies he's sitting or, or, or laying. 
Uh, and then he's told to go and rise and measure the temple. Uh, you know, something I was chewing on, may maybe there are some resurrection themes here. Uh, because if you remember from chapter 1, John sees Jesus and it says, and I fell over as dead. He fell over as if he was dead. Um, I think that's how it says literally, but I could be wrong. But it's basically just of it, essentially. And Jesus raises him to ascend. Remember, Jesus touches him and raises John and to ascend to heaven. Well, here, John has ingested this scroll, the word of God, and is told to rise, this time to new ministry. So maybe I'm reaching, but I, I think this is something to chew on that the first, when he encountered Christ, he fell over as dead and then was raised. Here he encounters the word of Jesus, the scroll of Jesus, uh, and now is raised once again. So there, there might be some connection here. Uh, verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Um, two thoughts, and this is that's our text today. Whenever the topic of end times or eschatology, which just means study of the end, end times. Whenever whenever the topic of the end times is presented, I always, personally, I, I do not like it when people start putting timelines together, which happens a lot. Uh, and they're, they, they seemingly are very helpful when you get a timeline of the end times, um, but it actually becomes typically unhelpful when you've seen more than one of them. Because when you've seen two or three or four timelines, they all start to disagree with each other. <laughs> so you go, well, what is it? Uh, so it's very, very hard to digest the, these timelines. So I'm just personally not a fan uh, of timelines. I, I feel like charts about when things are supposed to happen in the end, you know, you get those diagrams and pie charts and calendars. I'm just not a big fan of the dating and timelines of all this stuff, which I'm sure you've noticed because I haven't tried to place the rapture. You know, a lot of people are, uh, God's definitely pre-tribulation. He's definitely mid-tribulation. He's definitely post. People are going to war over the dating of the rapture, and we all can point to scriptures that seem to prove our point. Well, the question is, we don't know. Are the realities we don't know? We do not know when the rapture is going to take place. I also haven't tried to specifically time the seventieth week of Daniel, which is you know in the book of Daniel. I haven't tried to place the first three and a half years of the tribulation in the back half of the tribulation and say this is when the Antichrist stands in the place of you know and sets up the abomination of desolation. I haven't done those things, and and my reason is. Man has always been wrong on God's timing. <laughs> when you when you read when when you read the the Old Testament, you'll notice that people really struggle with the timing of God's prophecies. It's just always the way it, it seems to be. So, in a sense, I really try to leave the timing in the exact order to God. I feel like if he needed us to know the exact order, he would have given us the exact order. And the fact that everyone's warring over the exact order means that it it's part of the mystery. 
And I don't want to sit here and say, this is definitely what's, what's happening. Uh, now, that being said, chapter 11 is near impossible to understand unless there is some timing discussed. So I try to avoid timing things as much as I can, but then there come moments where you're forced to say, this is where I think this is because it, it there's interpretive um, ramifications to that and one that I have to make. So here, here's my thinking, and I could be wrong, but this is where I'm at. In Revelation chapter 10, John ate the scroll and was told to prophesy. Then John almost seems to not prophesy, but instead he measures. So it, it's kind of odd. I, I thought you were prophesying, John. Why are you now told to measure? So here's my thinking. I believe Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, is the summary of the prophecy on the scroll that John ate. I believe chapter 11 is the verses 1 through 13 is the prophecy on the scroll that John ate. Uh, again, I could be wrong, but the timing of verses 1 through 13 seems to be an event that takes place at the end of Revelation. When you read when you read verses 1 through 13 in its conclusion and then you read the song of praise after it, it seems to be an event that takes place at the end of the book. The song in verse 15 and 19 seems to talk about as if the millennial kingdom is here. So, so this is again what, what I'm thinking. The events in verses 1 through 13 are going to take place during the second half of the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is the seven-year window of time just before the return of the Lord where the Antichrist is having full reign and torment on uh, tormenting the earth. Now, the three and a half years mentioned, it's going to be mentioned specifically in this chapter, uh, will be the last three and a half years before the restoration of Israel, the millennial reign. Then chapter four begins, which marks the start of the second half of the book of Revelation, and chapter 12 then begins describing the last three and a half years in detail. So in short, Verses 1 through 13 are the preview of what's to come that will be described in further detail starting in chapter 12. So chapter 11, there's almost two timelines now. Chapter 11 is a zoom of the last three and a half. Or ch chapter 11 is, is what's happening in the last three and a half years. And then chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 is going to start laying out also what has happened in those last three and a half years. Again, I can be wrong, but, but structurally, verses 3 through 10, these two witnesses are present amongst the three and a half years of the Antichrist. We're going to be introduced for the beast that rises, uh, the Antichrist out of, out of the sea here. Uh, and then it's going to be talked about and introduced in further detail later in the book. So he's previewed and then shared in greater detail. Verses 11 through 13, Israel seems to fall into a national repentance after great evil. Well, Israel, we're going to come to pretty quickly, is going to be in a time of tremendous evil. So did they repent or are they evil? Well, chapter 11 is the preview for what's going to be talked about in a greater detail. Uh, which, again, is describing what's coming in further chapters. Verse, uh, verses 15 through 19 seems to celebrate the coming of the millennial kingdom, which, again, is going to happen towards the end of the book. So verses 1 through 13 
is the preview to the second half of the Great Tribulation, and chapter 12 is going to start it in further detail. And I want to be totally transparent here. To me, chapter 11 is certainly a story that summarizes the back half of the Great Tribulation. I, I really don't have any questions about that. That seems pretty dang certain to me. The only real uncertainty uh, that I have going into this section is what exactly is the prophecy John is told to prophesy, you know, fr from the scroll. Again, my best thought is chapter 11 is the prophecy from the scroll, and then in chapter 12, God reveals more in further detail. However, there's very legitimate argumentation that the rest of the book actually is John's prophecy. Uh, but again, that doesn't jive with me, but you know, th there's the question is, where is John's prophecy? How many chapters does it take place? How many verses does it take place? Um, it's just not very clearly defined. Uh, and most honest pastors and scholars will say that they don't know. Uh, and I'd like to join in with them and say, I don't know. <laughs> but presently, uh, and, and this could change, presently this is my best thought, that chapter 12 is John's prophecy um, before the verse 14, which announces the second woe is concluded. Um, and then the rest of the book describes that period of time in further detail. Um, that's something that may have bored the heck out of you. That's something that may have blessed you tremendously. I have no idea. But these are things that we need to know going into the into this section, into this book, uh, because structure brings clarity, and God structures things constantly to bring clarity. Um, now, our, our second and final thought here today, I want to talk about ethnicity. Sunday I talked about the restoration of Israel, and we have to ask ourselves a very important question whenever the topic of the restoration of Israel comes up, and that is, how do people become saved? Because on the topic of the restoration of Israel, there is frequently a heresy that creeps in, and we have to be doubly guarded against this. The, the, the heresy in some dispensational circles is that there are two peoples of God. And that's not true. You'll hear a lot of times that the Jewish people are God's people. Well, that's a very dangerous subject. How are they God's people? Didn't Jesus said, I, I can raise sons of Abraham from these very stones. You know, Jesus seemed to go, no, that's not true. And, you know, Jesus said that surely it'll be better in the day for judgment of Sodom, of, of Sodom and Gomorrah than for some of you Israelites. So, you know, this, this is just not true. No, no one is saved because of their ethnicity. <laughs> you know, the English are not saved because of the King James Bible. Like, Oh, that was really good. Let's everyone saved via that. You know, uh, uh, Italians aren't saved because you know uh, Augustine lived there and the Council of Nicaea and all these things. And so, the Jewish people and we we have to understand this. This has to be plain to us. The Jewish people in these last days will not be saved because they are Jewish. They will be saved, Zechariah 12.10, when they look on Jesus whom they pierced 
and will be saved. All people are saved by one way, by faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. And in this last day, God is going to remove the hardening of the Jewish people and pour out his spirit like he did in Acts chapter 2, like he did in Germany in the 1500s, like he did in England in the 1700s, like he did in California in the 1900s, like he's going to do today, uh, like he's doing today in parts of Africa and China. God pours his spirit out upon a region and revival breaks out. And they repent of their sins and turn to Jesus for salvation. This is what will happen in the end times. God will pour his spirit out upon the Jewish people in Jerusalem once again, seemingly for the last time until his return. And the Jewish people will be saved because of one reason. Because they will have accepted Jesus as Lord. We, we have to be very clear on this. There are not two peoples of God. There are not two peoples of God. We read Romans chapter 9 on Sunday. That, that we have been grafted in and they have been cut. They have been pruned. They have been removed. God is going to put them back in. But th there are not two people of God. We are in one singular there is one singular tr trunk. God is God is the the trunk of the church, and He can engraft in whatever He wants. But the Jewish people will be saved in the end for one reason: it's because they have looked on Him who they have pierced, as Zechariah says, and they will weep and they will mourn and they will realize that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is Lord, Kurios, uh, and they will be saved like every other people throughout church history have been saved is because they've accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And just as a closing thought here, if anyone comes from a reformed background and um, I, I, I most, almost every single person that I, I hold dear to me in theology is very reformed. In fact, I don't know if I can think of anyone who's not reformed <laughs> that, that I listen to regularly. Um, and, you know, in, in a lot of reform circles, you, you hear, you hear how they put down the, the teachings of the, of the, the restoration of Israel. I mean, almost all of my living heroes would vehemently disagree with me about the restoration, uh, of Israel. They say it's not confessional. They say it's not historical, but, but quite frankly, that's just not true, uh, when when you when you look at the teachings of Augustine on this subject, Aquinas, Calvin, Bovnik, Edwards, Spurgeon, they all held that God was not done with His grace upon the Jewish people. You, if you if you search those names and what they thought about Israel, these you'll see that it wasn't no Israel's done. That's just not how 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 historically it is. These men were honest enough to say, I don't understand it. But God is not done with these people. You know, so, so the, the charge that this is all new teaching, the restoration of Israel, this isn't historical, this isn't, this isn't what God's people have thought. John Darby made this up in the 1800s, who I have my own problems with. But the idea that this all came from Darby is just not factual. Even some of the patristics held this view, like Tertullian and Justin Martyr. The, the, the church has believed, believed the restoration of Israel all the way back from the second century we have letters of.
And of course, you know, I would, I would say Paul <laughs> clearly speaks about it in Romans 9. So, um, you know, we have to understand that these things uh, seem very plainly to be coming, and the church has held these views for a very long time. Uh, but there's also a warning there that there are not two different peoples of God. There are one people of God, and they all, all of us become people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Belief in, in Christ alone uh, and all that he had provided through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and, and, and uh, yeah, an ascension. Um, and that's how we're saved. And we don't want to muddy those waters when we start getting into the restoration of Israel topic. Because then we can really fall into heresy and, and some scary stuff. Um, so we want to make sure we're very clear on, on soteriology and how someone gets saved and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. So with that, we're done. Let's, um, let's pray for, uh, the week and we'll get moving. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask that you would guide and direct us. We ask that you would strengthen us. God, we pray that you help us to be very clear in our understanding of salvation. Because, God, if we can find wiggle room outside of the cross, then we can find wiggle room for anything. We are not saved because of, because of ethnicity. We are not saved because of morality. We are not saved because of uh, <laughs> our standard of ethics or whatever it is. And we know we are saved by way of the cross. Let us be very clear on this. Burn this, burn the gospel into our hearts plainly and our minds plainly. Be with us now in Jesus' name. We love you. We thank you. Amen. I love you guys. I'll see you Sunday. Thanks for joining us for this Calvary Baltimore B-Side. If you'd like to get in touch or come visit us at Calvary Baltimore, our website is calvarychapelbaltimore.org. You can email us at calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you've been blessed by today's teaching and would like to donate to the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. Until next time, keep drawing closer to God through the reading of His Word and join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore B-Side.